please take out your message notes and grab a Bible and join me in Acts chapter 9, verse 19. This is where we're going to be camping out today. If you are a guest with us here in the auditorium or online, we're so grateful that you've chosen to be with us a little bit here. Uh, Just a context uh, update for you on what we've been studying. The book of Acts covers approximately the first 30-ish years of Christian church history as as the church expanded across the Roman Empire. This book was written by an early Christian named Luke, who was a first century medical doctor. We think Luke may have attended medical school in a city called Tarsus, which housed one of the Roman Empire's three medical schools. And this is perhaps significant because Luke spends a a considerable amount of time here in the book of Acts recording the ministry and history of another Tarsus resident named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul. Uh, Saul, or Paul, was raised in Tarsus and spent a considerable amount of time there, as we're going to see in just a few moments. Uh, And it's quite possible Tarsus is where Luke and Paul met and became friends, and we're really glad they're friends, because from this friendship, we have a ton of biblical material that we love to read about. Now, in last weekend's message, we studied the conversion story of Saul, the famous road to Damascus encounter, uh, you may recall if you were with us, where the living son of God, Jesus Christ, visibly and audibly appears to Saul, who is on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And uh, in doing so, uh, Saul becomes a believer in Jesus like in a moment's time. I mean, everything was upended for him. Uh, everything he thought about God was completely pulverized in that moment. The tomb is truly empty. Uh, Saul didn't think it was. And now he's meeting the alive Jesus before him. Uh, what s- all the Christians had recognized way before Saul that, that the tomb is empty since that first Easter. Now this is true for him. Who was He was this opponent of the gospel, and and there's this big shift. Now, he's in a state of shock right after this. We talked about this last weekend. He was basically spiritually concussed, and uh, and so his cage is rattled. But immediately, Luke tells us, he begins his public ministry, preaching in the vast uh, synagogue network in the city of Damascus. Over 10,000 Jews live there, lots of synagogues, 40 synagogues. And now the Christian Uh, Saul is preaching, and everybody in the synagogues knows who this guy is and knows his backstory and is shocked, is amazed at what they're seeing because the guy who came to eliminate Christians is now one himself, and everybody's like, what? And no one can believe it, and it's, I'm just seeing if you're awake. Okay, you are. Good. All right, let's read what happens next, verse 19. For some days... Saul was with the disciples at at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here in Damascus for the same purpose, to bring Christians bound back to Jerusalem before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. All right, let's, uh, let's stop here and just work, work through this. There's something here that mm, is kind of buried, and I think it's going to be helpful. 
Bible scholars will work through passages of scripture in Acts and in the epistles in an attempt to come up with a Pauline timeline, which is actually a little bit hard to do. There's some ambiguity about where he was and how much time he spent in certain places and the order of events. And this is one of those texts that is helpful. In that pursuit, what we do know is there is wide agreement amongst the scholars of a three-year time gap between verses 22 and 23. Look back down at your Bibles, verse 22. He's in Damascus, Saul increased all the more in strength and so forth, and then 23. Luke says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So in between that many days is three years. And some stuff happens in these three years that Luke doesn't mention. Uh, Well, what happens, Billy? I'm glad you asked. What happens is Saul leaves Damascus and makes his way into the Arabian desert, specifically the Nabataean Arabian desert. The Nabataean kingdom was an actual kingdom that controlled a vast amount of land in the desert, starting in Damascus, modern-day Syria, and then east of Damascus and south of Damascus, all the way down uh, east of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea, uh, all the way down into modern-day Jordan and modern-day Saudi Arabia, all the way over, slide over to the Sinai Peninsula, was the Nabataean-controlled area of the desert. They were a desert people. They were a very successful kingdom for over four centuries. And they're probably most known for today uh, their enduring legacy Uh, the city of Petra, their capital city. Now, if you don't know what that is, well, here's a picture of a famous site that you can go to, uh, also made famous from, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third Indiana Jones film. All of the Xers and the boomers are nodding. And it was an old, old classic film, all you young people. Carved from Red Rose Rock, in these canyons in southern Jordan, the Nabataeans created this city, a beautiful place. So Saul spends three years out in this area in Arabia, in the desert. And then he goes back to Damascus and resumes preaching. But when you read it, it just seems like he's always been there and it's just like a couple months or whatever. So he's, it's easy to miss. But as we read, you saw that Saul resumes preaching, and then he soon has to escape Damascus because the Jewish leadership now wants to kill him, and they're waiting at the gates of the city, all the gates, the exits, to try to catch him. And then we also find out uh, from 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, uh, Paul writes that the king of the Nabataeans, King Eratus, also wants to kill him at the same time. So he has ticked off everybody. He's ticked off the government. He's ticked off the religious people. And so he has to escape. And so how he escapes is he jumps in a basket, a huge basket that can hold a man. And the Christians lower him uh, probably through a window or an area in the outer wall. There was apartments and things built in. And so they sneak him out. And what we think is this was a garbage basket. This is the big basket's Uh, this is how they got rid of their garbage. They just tossed it out over the wall. Uh, and, um, and so, and so this must've been a stark moment for, for 
Paul, for Saul, this great Jewish thinker, this rising star in Judaism, you know, everywhere he went, people knew who he was. But here now, he's reduced to being tossed out with the evening trash to escape death. And then he goes down to Jerusalem immediately, and then we'll cover that next part in a moment. But I want to talk a little bit about these three years in the desert. Scholars refer to these years as the quiet years of Saul or the silent years because we don't know much about it. In fact, there's almost nothing about this except for the fact that we, we, we know he did have them. And we don't find that out from what we just read from the book of Acts. We have to go to one of Paul's other letters that he autobiographically covers in the book of Galatians. This is one of Paul's letters. He talks about this. Go to Galatians 1 with me real quick if you can. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. And this is Paul now recounting his own conversion story, which he does several times in, in the Bible. Here's what it says. Verse 11. For I, this is Paul talking, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was not preached by, uh, that, the gospel, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I, verse 12, did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the road to Damascus conversion. That when he got saved, it wasn't because Peter or another apostle preached the gospel to him. Jesus showed up and preached the gospel to him directly. So he didn't receive it from a man. He got it straight from Christ. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of the fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who would call me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, Cephas, and remained with him 15 days. So that's the section where we sort of connect these dots. We pull from Galatians 1, and we find that there's this three-year period Saul is telling us about his desert experience. But he just mentions it, right? He doesn't give us any deep details. Wow, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. He's quiet about it. So in your, uh, in your notes now, I'll give you some fill-ins. The quiet years, we're going to break them up into two parts. The first part is three years in the Arabian desert. These are on your notes now. And it's at this point where we kind of have to take an educated guess as to what went down during this period. The, the Nabataean desert area, as I said, was very large. So Paul could have made his way down to Petra. Maybe he hung out there for a while. Some scholars uh, postulate that perhaps he went all the way down to Mount Sinai itself and pondered Moses receiving the law, the Ten Commandments at that site. Uh, so we can't be sure. But what we can be relatively certain about is that this period of three years was a time 
of deep level processing for Saul. He was, he was processing his salvation experience. He was reworking his theological framework at this time. He's being kind of rebooted, if you will. He's being worked on by God and God had to send him out into the, des- the desert to do so. So uh, an analogy, um, I'm not, I'm a computer guy, I'm a nerd guy, as you know. Uh, duh, look how I dress. Uh, I mean, I'm not an Apple guy. I preach against Apple. It's a cult. You guys know this, right? <laughs> I, the, the last service straight up booed me right here. I'm surprised I'm not getting more. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Windows guy. Uh, and when you get a new hard drive, when you have a Windows computer, before you can use the hard drive, you have to reformat the hard drive. So you plug it in and you get this. You, hey, you need to reform or format the hard, the, huh, the disk in drive H before you can use it. Do you want to format it? Format disk. And then it goes through a little thing and it's ready to write on and you can re, you start like using it and saving stuff on it and whatnot. Well, that's what's going on here. God is, is formatting the hard drive of the Apostle Paul. He had an operating system that was entirely of law and merit-based righteousness and these things, and now he's met Jesus, and it has to be completely redone. He has to get an upgrade to the operating system of grace, of, of you get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's a big change. It goes from old covenant to new covenant. It goes from law to grace. It goes from works to to a non-merit-based system. It's a beautiful thing. But it took a while to reformat the hard drive. So after three years of wandering around in the desert, whatever he was doing, he goes back to Damascus, and now he's preaching again, and the Jews now want to kill him, and the king, Eretus, wants to kill him, so he gets dumped out with the night's trash. All right, let's find out what happens next. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, so he goes right out from the wall to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples in Jerusalem, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So remember from earlier, we covered this. Saul persecuted the church in Jerusalem quite badly. Do you remember this? He was fierce. He was violent. He was murderous. He was frothing at the mouth. He was zealous for his religion, and he wanted to stamp out this growing movement called Christianity, and he was doing whatever it took. And now as a Christian, he, come back, he comes back into the church he tried to destroy and they didn't receive him very well. So imagine for a moment that right, all of us right here, we're the Jerusalem church in this situation and you're here and, and, and you have had friends and family put in jail and in some cases murdered for their faith in Jesus because of this guy. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your cousin. Maybe it's your neighbor. And then the guy, Saul, walks in, picture this, 
walks in these doors, plops down on a chair and starts taking notes in a sermon. How are you going to feel about that? You're going to feel threatened. You're going to feel angry. You're going to be like, dude, what are you doing here? My mom is dead because of you. Are you serious? That's, that's what's happening. And you get a sense of that here in verse 26. They didn't want him around. They were scared of him. They didn't believe him. They remembered what he had already done. A lot of damage. Except for one person. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to the apostles how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and then how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We've met Barnabas before. Earlier in the book of Acts, he was a wealthy Christian from the island of Cyprus, a wealthy Jewish man who became a Christian. He donated money to the church. The apostles at the time gave him a nickname. They renamed him. They, they called him the encourager, which is what Barnabas means. And he's a, he's a great disciple. He's a, he's a core person in the Jerusalem church. He's still there. And he steps forward to sponsor Saul. He's the only one. Nobody else will touch him. Barnabas sees something in this man and he takes a risk and he vouches for him and he brings him forward and says, hey guys, he's legitimate. And because of that, Saul is now accepted into the church. People realize that, oh, if Barnabas says it's okay, then I guess you're okay. You can be here. Next verse, 28. So as a result of this, Saul went in and out, went in and out. Oh, there's in and out. There's a, that's in the Bible. Again, it's a, it's a great organization. We should all have lunch there soon. Um, it's biblical. Among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were a sect of Judaism. They were basically the Jewish people that had lived in Jerusalem, but they weren't from Israel. They were from the Roman Empire. They were Hellenized. They were Greek, and they had relocated and had their own synagogue. They were still fully Jewish, just not ethnically Israelite. And Paul got into it with them. They were seeking then to kill him. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned about this plot, they brought Saul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. So Saul finds himself once again in the crosshairs of his enemies. These Jewish synagogues in Jerusalem were now trying to kill him. So the Christian brothers bring him down to the ocean, to the port city of Caesarea Maritima, which is located right on the Mediterranean. And here's a picture of the ruins of it. It's really a fascinating site. You can see uh, there's a power plant for modern-day Israel there. But th this is really a beautiful site. King Herod built a harbor here. And I'll talk to you about it more later because Caesarea keeps popping up in the narrative. But this was a major port city. And this was uh, where a lot of shipping happened. And goods and, and people were, were all over the place. And so the brothers put him on a boat, and sent him back home to southern Turkey to his hometown, Tarsus. 
And this is part two of the quiet years, what I'm calling part two, because we think Saul spends between seven and 14 years in Tarsus. We're not quite sure. Again, that's that ambiguity in the timeline or some discussion, but it's a while. And these are more quiet years. We don't hear about anything that Saul is doing in this time period. So if you do some math, Saul's total quiet period lasted approximately on the upper end 17 years. And this then is from Acts chapter 9, basically right before our sermon today, his conversion, and then Acts 13, which we will get there hopefully if we don't die of old age first. Uh, Acts 13, when Saul is sent, Paul is sent now on, now he's known as Paul, he's sent uh, on his first missionary journey between those four chapters is 17 years. 17 years of study, of prayer, of reflection, 17 years of tearing down old foundations and rebuilding new ones. That's a long time. Think about 17 years. Where were you in 2006? Some of y'all weren't even born yet. Quite a few of you in here probably, huh? Where were you in 2006? So wherever you were in 2006 to now is 17 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. But, you know, in the Bible, when God deals with people, this is not that unique. A pastor that I listen to a lot says, in fact, this type of thing is standard with God. This is how God does it with his people. Uh, For example, Moses had 40 quiet years, 40 Four decades. What was he doing? He was out in the backside of Mount Sinai's desert tending to his father-in-law's sheep herd. He, he was not even the owner. It was his father-in-law. I hope they got along. That's a long time. I think they did. But it was a long time of hanging out, quiet years. Uh, the, another, another shepherd, David, King David, before he was King David, he spent quite a few years, 15, we think, hanging out and tending to his dad's flock of sheep out in the wilderness, just chilling. He had his staff, he had his, he had his flock, he had his sling, he was probably practicing, you know? I don't know what boys do. They like to shoot stuff. That was their gun, and that's what he's doing. Joseph, another young man, spent 13 years with his quiet years. He was a slave, he was in prison, and he was just trying to stay alive. And then, of course, Jesus... We don't know almost anything about Jesus other than his birth and then one one account from when he was in middle school and then silence, 30 years until he went public with his ministry. So these these are processes that God uses. It's common that he does to help work certain things into his kids. And I can confidently say that these quiet years or these quiet seasons... It's not just Bible people that get them. It's all of us. It's you and me. It's regular folks that God brings these quiet seasons to you and to me. But they look different than they did in the Bible. They were shepherds. And I don't know, this is Roseburg, so I suppose they could be shepherds here too. But these things look different. What do they look like for you and me in modern times? Well, this could be where maybe you're in between jobs. You've left a job, 
and this next job and you're in between and it's not coming, there's not any open doors and you get some frustration there. There's some time. Or maybe it's time after a romantic breakup or maybe even a divorce. Or, or maybe there's a medical issue that has you sidelined and you have to hit the pause button because you're rehabbing from surgery and you can't do anything that you used to do, right? You're rehabbing from rotator cuff or from knee surgery or you had a broken leg or, or maybe there's a worse ailment that just has you just like you're not, you're just frustrated because, oh, I used to do this, whatever this, I used to fish, I used to hike, I used to, you know, have an active life and now I'm stuck on the couch just healing, or maybe you're caring for an aged parent and you're just like awake at night caring for needs and you're just like, man, this is my life. How did this happen? You just seem like you're stuck. Or maybe you're in a dead-end job and you don't want to be there and there's no other job that's waiting and it's not where you want to be. No one seems to notice you. You feel overlooked all the time. You get passed by by all of those around you and your peers, when you check them out on social media, they're living their best life now, but you're living your suckiest life now and you're wondering why? What's wrong with me? You get the sense that you're falling behind. There's, a, there's an obscurity about your life, a hiddenness about your life, and it's frustrating. It's a valley time. It's a dry time. These are the quiet years, friends. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're frustrated. Man, your prayers are like, Lord, I'm still here, Lord. I'm still here. Have you forgotten my name? Do you know where I am, God? I don't know if you've ever prayed those prayers, but that's a common prayer in the quiet seasons. I'm still struggling. I haven't leveled up in a while, Lord. My life's not where I want it to be, Lord. I'm still struggling financially, Lord. Lord Jesus, I still cannot afford a starter house in Roseburg, and now they're 500 grand. What are you going to do? That's real. <laughs> you're in the hallway. Man, you're in the hallway and there's no doors open. Perhaps, friend, that this is not the devil. Maybe you've rebuked the devil. Maybe this is God. Maybe he's got you in a quiet season. Perhaps he's putting you into the Nabataean des desert. Maybe he's brought you to Tarsus to hang out with him. And for you to be quiet. God is working some deep things in these seasons. What happens in a quiet season? There's some things that go on. I could, I could do this. I could probably do three weekends on this. But I'll do seven minutes. There's, there's three things here on your notes. First, character is formed in you during a quiet season. God's really interested in your character. He's interested in your interior person, who you really are on the inside. He's not really into externals. God isn't. He more is interested in your character, on your ontological self, in yourself, looking more and more like the character of Jesus, your moral integrity, your values, your virtues, your internal attitudes that power your actions and thoughts. Quiet seasons are when character is chiseled into your soul, into the likeness of Jesus. Picture with me now Saul sitting in the desert in Arabia, all this theology crammed into his head, all this knowledge, all of these scriptures. He memorized the Torah. He memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Quite possibly, we think Saul had the entire Old Testament memorized. That's crazy. I mean, I can't even remember my kids' phone numbers. It was impressive. 
you know what Saul sucked at? Being nice to people. He wanted to murder everybody around him all the time. He had to learn how to love like Jesus. He had to learn forgiveness and patience and, and grace and a servant's heart. He actually writes about this in one of his letters, Galatians. Look at this. One of the famous verses of Paul. But the fruit of the Spirit. Look at this character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This is the character qualities that God is working into his heart and his soul during the quiet years. And this is what God can do in your life when you're sitting in the Nabataean desert, if you let him. Another item that he works into us is our worldview is changed. This has to do with your beliefs. This is your, your convictions, your assumptions of how the world works. Your worldview is conscious, and sometimes it's even subconscious. It's your plausibility structure in life. Ethics, morals are included, purpose, the nature of people, the meaning of life. These are all worldview things that are just interwoven into our minds and hearts. And if you grew up like me, I grew up in Oregon. I had a secular worldview. That's how I was raised. Secular worldviews are very different than biblical worldviews. But when I met Jesus, God had to, over time, transform my worldview from secular to biblical. And quiet seasons from God are amazingly useful to, re, to retool how you think and how you process situations in light of the empty tomb. You have the space in a quiet season to do some good old self-confrontation with the fact that not all your views are in alignment with God's views, and this was happening with Saul. He writes about it, again, in another one of his letters, Romans in 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is all about worldview transformation. This is what God was doing in Tarsus, in the desert, in Saul's mind and heart. He was transforming his worldview. Don't assume then that everything that you believed about the world before you met Jesus still holds after you meet Christ. That means, guys, guys, that means you may have to be open to changing your views on just the small stuff like sex and money and politics and relationships. You know, minor things. <laughs> now that you know Jesus. Okay, last one. Humility is learned in the quiet seasons. You feel passed over. You get humbled. No one's hiring you. Maybe you're, maybe you're not as much at the bomb.com as you thought you were. That's a good thing. Humility is such a huge thing in the life of God's kids. Humility is a growing recognition of dependence upon the Lord. It's learning to serve others. And it's about fostering an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. Paul again writes about this in another letter, Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I've been through, I would say, several of these quiet seasons. One was actually um, in my last church 
my last role as a pastor, I was in a church in California and I was hired as a campus pastor. And that meant that I was in charge of, it was a multi-site model and I was in charge of one of those sites. It was about 28 miles from the main campus where all the successful pastors worked. <laughs> and I was in this three or 400 person uh, church community and we were a video venue, so most of the weekends I wasn't teaching. We were sh- I was popping in a video, and we were watching it, and we held church in a high school, a huge high school. And that meant that every Sunday morning at 6 a.m., I got a crew of people to, to tear down all of the chairs and the tables in the cafetorium. How many of you know that a high school cafetorium is pretty gross? Uh, the stories. And then we would do that and we would set up metal chairs and, and screens and AVL equipment, all mobile. And then we would go into the classrooms and set up areas for kid men. And some of the teachers did not like us because, you know, California, and they would purposefully set up their classrooms very difficult for us to replicate. So that way they could complain and thereby possibly get us kicked out of the high school. So I used to have to go in and video detail video of every classroom where every chair, every desk was, and then text that to the crew that that started at noon. And that way they could put everything right back the same so that Mrs. Johnson was happy. (laughs) That was my life. For eight years, this was a major thing of what I did every week, was preparing for this, buying the food and cooking the food for the teams and stuff. And I mean, it was, just, it was exhausting. And I can remember many Sunday mornings when my main job was to set up rows of these ridiculously uncomfortable cold metal chairs, 12 in a row. And my main job was to make them straight. And my prayer was, Lord, I have two master's degrees in theology, and this is what you have me doing. Why? And the Lord is, oh, son, this is right where I have you. This is right where I want you. You do your best. These are the quiet years. You do your best when you're in your quiet years. And I learned humility. I learned servant's heart. I learned how to warm up sausage little muffins for the team. A very useful skill. (laughs) And it was beautiful. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. But in the moment, I felt very much, I felt like I wasn't living up to my call. But guys, in your quiet years, you are living out your call because you're right where God wants you to be. It's important that if you're in a quiet season that you learn to recognize it as such, that way you can partner with the Holy Spirit and not fight it. It seems to last a little longer when you fight it. So if that's any consolation for you. And if you're in one right now, then you're in good company because the man 
Saul, the apostle Paul, was tempered for 17 years straight before he ever wrote a book of the Bible, before he ever went on a missionary trip and planted churches and saw healings and did all this incredible thing that we have Bible for. He sat in a desert. He sat in his hometown waiting and getting retooled and getting rebuilt and getting reconstructed brick by brick by Jesus himself. God sent him into the desert. God sent him to Tarsus to prepare him for his future. And so it is with us. And the last thing I want to say is if you're in one of these, don't waste it. Don't waste your quiet season. Don't despise your quiet season, your silent years. Don't push it off and complain and rebuke the devil and stomp around and just, and just accept where God has you and partner with him and let him do his good work in your soul. Okay, that's the end of my sermon. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the beauty of your word that even in, even in the parts of the Bible that we don't know a lot about, there's still so much to learn. And I'm praying, God, that you would help us in our own processing in these quiet times, these quiet periods, years. Lord, it's not a weekend. It's not a, a week-long thing. These are seasons and valleys and desert times that last. And I'm praying for those who are in them that you would teach us to have the chiseled out character that looks like Jesus and you would help our worldviews be transformed into a biblical worldview, a kingdom worldview, and that you would teach us humility, Lord. It's a good thing for American Christians to learn humility and so we're praying for that in our lives. And we love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you're our model and that this is all by your grace. So let us, Lord, understand and embrace the quiet seasons just as you did. And we pray these things now in your beautiful name, the lovely name of Jesus, the perfect name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. <laughs>